0: Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. Before we read the passage, let's uh, pause for prayer. Our heavenly father, what a delight it is to look at the basic furniture in the tabernacle and to see what you were teaching your Israelites, the people, the old covenant, first of all, and then also what you're teaching us who live 2000 years on the side of the coming of Jesus. And so we pray that you'd give us clarity as we look at the Bronze Basin, and as we bring that into the New Covenant, we pray that you'd not only give clarity in minds, but also a grant spiritual growth for us, that this would not be just some theological exercise, but indeed uh, uh, a great opportunity and a great means by which we come to know you better and grow in our faith. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. All right, Exodus 30, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. As far, as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. So, beloved Congregation of Hope, and everyone with us here uh, tonight, as we walk through this, I want to notice uh, no introduction at all, just uh, three things. So, just the bronze basin itself briefly, and then the cleansing of the bronze basin again briefly, and then the significance of the bronze basin, which is where we're going to spend most of our time uh, this evening. So, first, uh, just the bronze basin itself, very straightforward in its construction. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 30, you shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Again, nothing fancy at all. It was simply a, a basin. We're not even told the size here. We know the size of the one that was built later uh, in, the, in the temple, but this basin was a uh, just to be built out of bronze and was set on a stand and you fill it with water. And we're told from Exodus 38, 8, that he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Some of us who said, what? i got to give up my mirror. There were some ladies who had to give up their, their mirrors. And a mirror was not like a piece of glass like we think of today, right? It was highly polished metal and you could see a reflection in it. And so this basin was made largely of those uh, mirrors uh, which belonged to the ministering uh, women. Uh, so that's just the basin. It was set between the tabernacle and the altar uh, of sacrifice. And so after you would offer a sacrifice, you'd walk in, you'd hit the altar first. Then if you kept going straight, you walk by the basin. If you kept going straight in, you would end up at the front door to the holy place. So the cleansing of the basin, second thing I want us to notice. If you look at verse 18, you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. So the basin was used for a very simple purpose. Literally, if you were a priest and you were serving in the courtyard of the tabernacle. You would be washing your hands and your feet a lot. You go to the altar, you offer a sacrifice, you wash your hands and feet. Remember, you're in the wilderness. There's a lot of dust, there's a lot of dirt. You're dirty a lot. Also, you're offering sacrifices, so your hands are getting bloody and dirty. You're separating entrails out, you're separating different portions of animals out, you're putting some on the altar, you're throwing blood on the side of it, and on the horns of the altar, you're taking other stuff outside the camp it's a bloody work. It's a lot of work. And so they're called to wash before they go to the altar and then wash before you go into the tent of meeting. A lot of washing was happening. This is not a matter of housekeeping as though the Lord is saying, hey, I don't want any dust in my house. Again, they're in the wilderness and it's not like they had an airtight Uh, enclosure like we build now. We have passive houses where you can build them almost completely airtight. You have to force air into them. That's not the tabernacle. We've got some curtains. (laughs) We've got probably a lot of wind that's blowing. And this is not a matter of housekeeping. This is God teaching us people what? You need to be cleansed. You need to be cleansed or what happens? You die. Twice over, we're told, if they don't pull this off, if they don't cleanse correctly, they will just die. That'll be the end. So, the Lord is clearly communicating to His people, to the priests especially, that when you minister to me, when you offer sacrifices, when you go into the tent of meeting, make sure you wash up. You have to not only yourselves learn cleansing, but you have to display to everybody who's there worshiping, or there who's worshiping during the hours of prayer and sacrifice what it means to approach the Lord, and it always means what? You need to be cleansed. You need to be washed up. The Israelites understood this so much so that David in Psalm 24, 3 said, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He's thinking about going up to the tabernacle to worship. And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He's thinking about washing, ceremonial washing there. Not like, oh, I don't have any dirt on my hands, I'm good. No, but I've been washed and my heart is pure. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time regarding the significance of the Bronze Basin because we're not in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. And one thing that we learned from this is that cleansing was necessary to approach the Lord. And external washing was simply a teaching tool. It was a teaching tool for the Israelites. It's instructive for us. If you're going to approach the Lord, you need to be cleansed. Now, what is interesting is when you turn over to the New Testament, the language of cleansing is so often applied to the moment of our conversion or the moment we're saved. So think Titus 3.5, God saved us by what? The washing of regeneration. There's the language of cleansing applied to our salvation so that at the moment we're saved, we're cleansed, we're sanctified, we're set apart. But there's other passages in the New Testament, which if you read them, Cleansing is referred to as something which is ongoing in our lives. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So their cleansing isn't something that's taken place sort of once for all, but it's something we're actually involved in and something we get to be part of as God's people. What we'd probably refer to as sanctification in the language we normally use it. So there are two kinds of cleansing, cleansings which happen in the new covenant, a cleansing at conversion and an ongoing cleansing all throughout the rest of our lives. And we're going to take a sneak peek at both of those cleansings this evening. But before we do so, I want to bring us to John 13, because they're actually both illustrated in the upper room when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. John thirteen eight. Peter said to the Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So did you catch what Jesus is saying? There are two kinds of cleansings depicted here. The one cleansing he refers to in verse 10 is the "The one who has bathed does not need to wash. So Peter's like, yeah, wash all of me. The Lord's saying to him, you've already bathed. You've already undergone that. You're already a child of mine. But he said, not everybody here is clean. Not everybody's undergone that bath. And he's speaking of Judas Iscariot, of course, right? He's one who has not undergone the washing of regeneration. But the other disciples he's referring to, Uh, they have. And so he speaks of a cleansing which bathes our entire bodies. And then he also speaks of a cleansing which just bathes the feet. And that's what he was doing. And by that, he's teaching Peter, look, there are two kinds of cleansings. The one at salvation, the moment you're saved, we are cleansed. And then there's an ongoing need for cleansing. And that's what Jesus was doing with the disciples' feet. They need to continue to be cleansed from the filth of their sin. And from that portrait and from the New Covenant look at cleansing, uh, we get two great cleansings which happen in the life of a believer. John J. David explained it this way. There is a sanctification which is complete and final through the blood of Christ. But there is also a sanctification which is continuous and practical. It paves the way for continued effective fellowship with God. And I think as we look at the bronze laver, we're actually getting a picture of what washing looks like. Flip over to the new covenant. We're washed at conversion. We're washed in our ongoing uh, gradual sanctification. And theologians have actually divided the sanctification up into two categories, positional or definitive sanctification, which is what happens when we're saved. And then the one we often think about, gradual or progressive sanctification, which is what takes place from the time we're saved throughout the rest of our lives as we grow. And both involve cleansing. So we're going to look at both of those tonight, beginning with positional or definitive sanctification. And I want to read some passages. It's all over the New Testament. In fact, if you read the New Testament, the number one way sanctification is used is to refer to it as a definitive act which takes place in our conversion. Titus 3, 5, God saved us by the washing of regeneration. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like he's got this all backwards. <laughs> Unless at conversion, we are washed of our sins, like washing of regeneration, and we are sanctified, meaning we are set apart into a different world, and we are justified. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. First Peter 1.22, having purified or cleansed your souls... By your obedience to the truth. In other words, the moment you obeyed the truth, repented and believed in Jesus, your souls were purified. John fifteen three, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. First Peter one two to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ. First Corinthians one two to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Hebrews ten ten by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Christ is our sanctification. He's the one by whom we receive a new status as those set apart, those who are cleansed. So notice, sanctification occurs at the moment we are justified, meaning we are set apart. That's one use of the language of sanctification. And it often goes together with cleansing in the New Testament, And John Murray, regarding this sanctification, this positional sanctification, wrote, the language of sanctification is used with reference to some decisive action that occurs at the inception of the Christian life, and one that characterizes the people of God and their identity as called effectually by God's grace. It would be, therefore, a deflection from biblical patterns of language and conception, to think of sanctification exclusively in terms of a progressive work. In other words, what he's saying is this, if you look at the the New Testament and the New Testament's use of sanctification, uh, what it means most frequently is actually a definitive positional work that takes place when we are first born again and we are washed clean, set apart for a different use. That's what it means. And I think that is one of the aspects that the bronze uh, basin is teaching us about our salvation. You can think of it, this is helpful to me to think of it this way. When the Canadian wildfires are burning all over Canada (laughs) and the US and Canada were under tons of smoke, uh, most people didn't really notice uh, unless visibility was really low, but everybody who had a lung problem, who's got weak lungs, noticed right away. Uh, Coughing, can't get a breath, probably on an inhaler or some medicines just to make it through the day. All the doctors will say the same thing regarding those who have weak lungs and lung conditions. The only way to have them heal is to get out of the smoke. You can inhaler your way through the day, but your lungs are still gonna be hurt. You can medicine your way through the day, and but your lungs will still not be healed. You're just reducing the symptoms. The only way is to breathe clean air. That's the only way your lungs can recover. And if you can breathe clean air for six to 12 months, then your lungs can actually recover. So imagine if you are living in Iowa, or you're living somewhere in the U.S. or Canada where all the smoke is and you want to uh, get rid of this filth that's in your lungs. What do you need? You need somebody to pick you up and transport you, probably preferably to a nice deserted island where the the water's blue and the shores are really sandy and they have margaritas and lawn chairs on the beach. right? But you need to go somewhere where the air is clean. If you can be picked up from the filthy, polluted place where you currently are and be brought to a different place and washed clean, as it were, and put in a new realm where the air you breathe is no longer polluted, but is clear, you can undergo healing. But if you continue to live in the realm of filth and pollution, there is no healing that's gonna take place. And so what happens in our cleansing is twofold. First, when we come to faith, we are relocated into a different world, set apart, sanctified, cleansed of our sins, and put in Christ, which is a different kingdom now. And having been washed and put there, now what takes place is since the penalty of sin has been dealt with, now the pollution or the stain or the filth of sin actually starts working itself out of us. And we can grow and we can heal And we can grow in our holiness. So that's a picture of what it is to be cleansed in two ways, right? A different position, a different status in Christ, a new location. We're in God's kingdom now. We've been cleansed of all of our guilt. And then the process of removing the power of sin starts. And that's where we come to progressive or gradual sanctification, which is how we will often use the language of sanctification. It's the number one way theologians use it. So this is the second kind of cleansing that can't happen unless we are set apart at conversion. It's not possible that we can be released from the slavery to sin and the filth of sin and the power of sin in our lives unless we have been first set apart by God and cleansed through Jesus Christ by the washing of regeneration. If that doesn't happen, then we will continue to remain under the power of sin. But when it does happen, we can actually, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We can actually do this. We can be involved in this work. We can see changes in our lives and we can slowly see that the power of sin in our lives is cleansed away gradually, never completely, but it starts to be cleansed away. And this is why the New Testament encourages us to grow. Why? Because we can grow now. We can actually grow in holiness. Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 4.1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more and we might be asking how does that spiritual growth and cleansing happen three ways i want to highlight tonight in case we're sitting here thinking yeah i get it i've been released from the penalty of my sin i've been cleansed from that i've been washed at regeneration but i've still got a lot of ongoing filth right i've been bathed but i need jesus to wash my feet i've got a lot of filth and i want to be cleansed of this in my own personal walk with the lord One way that we grow is by being in relationship with other believers, with whom we speak the truth and love to one another. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So the whole body is built up when members speak the truth to one another. It's a very valuable tool for us, isn't it? To know, yeah, how can I grow in my faith? How can I be cleansed of the filth of ongoing sin that's remaining in my life? That I want to be delivered from. Speak the truth in love. It's very simple, right? But often very difficult. Like, we live in a culture where confrontation is regarded as almost hate speech, and where people are scared to death, and Christians included, for whatever reason, to actually just tell people the truth in love, to do it in a loving way. In fact, we could, you could even make the argument we've sort of lost that skill. We're either really, really hateful or really, really mealy mouthed and say nothing. <laughs> But the early Christians were all about this. The Apostle Paul was too. And if we are serious about spiritual growth, which I know we all are, and every believer here wants to grow, then what does Paul say is one way we can grow, speaking the truth in love. What an opportunity there is for us. Let me put it this way. What an opportunity is missed when we're doing community with fellow believers, we're doing life together in a local church or with believers in other churches where we live. And we have no relationships where we're actually speaking the truth and love to other believers and they're never doing it to us. What an opportunity is missed for our spiritual growth. Imagine the blessing of being in a relationship with another believer. Probably just one or two, right? We don't have enough time to be in this kind of relationship with 20. But with one or two other believers, imagine the encouragement. Imagine the grace. Imagine the growth that comes from being in a relationship where they actually know you and they can speak the truth and love to you and do the same. It's well-received. You're committed to each other's well-being. You know they love you, and you know you love them. Uh, it's such a blessing, beloved. Such a means for our cleansing to slowly get rid of the filth of sin that continues to spot and to stain us. Another method or another means by which we undergo cleansing from the filth of sin is prayer, Colossians 1.9 We have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is Paul praying for? What is Paul doing? He's praying for these things. Isn't that fascinating? Paul's praying that others would grow in their knowledge of God, that they would bear fruit in every good work that they would do what's fully pleasing to the Lord by walking in a manner worthy of him. He's praying that for other people. And we can make the argument, these, these are prayers we should be praying for ourselves and other people, right? Prayer is a huge part of our spiritual growth. In fact, we could go this far, I think, just to say that if we don't get on our knees ever and cry out to God for grace, for cleansing, to to cleanse us on the inside, right? Like David prays in Psalm 51, that we can expect that we might not grow much, maybe not at all, because the Lord's the one working this in us. He's the one giving us the desire, even as we're involved in cleansing, we're involved in our sanctification, right? But it's the Lord who's doing this work. And so prayer is a vital part of it. And then the third thing I wanted to highlight is by encountering the word of God, that's how we grow. How can we grow? in progressive sanctification. Uh, we can be in close relationships with other believers, speaking the truth in love. We can pray and we can encounter the word of God. Ephesians five twenty six: Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There again, sanctification and cleansing are right next to each other. And the word is the tool that is used by the Lord to make his bride spotless, to set her apart and to cleanse her. It's the word that's used. And then John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If we plan to grow, if we want to grow again, which I know we do, then one of the very valuable means to growing is by coming into contact with the word of God regularly. Personal devotions, family devotions, weekly public worship, podcasts, sermons online, we are literally drowning <laughs> in resources which can help bring the Word of God into our realm and into our lives. So if we would like to grow, we've got to use the Word. And let me, let me just ask this before we move on. Do you have an individual or two in your life that knows what's going on in your life? and that is willing to speak the truth and love to you and you to them. Do you have such an individual or two? Do you have any Christian fellowship that goes deeper than the weather, the schedule, or various activities that you might be doing together? Again, this is probably not gonna be with a lot of people. We're not infinite. We don't have a ton of time. But if it's it's not with anybody, then we are really missing an opportunity to grow. What does our prayer life look like? Notice if you're like me, you've got to distinguish here because I can often fall into this trap, not how much do you know about prayer, not do we know we need to do it, but do we pray? And do we ask God to grow us? I was years ago just uh, confronted with this reality that I had to grow a lot and I have not asked for God to grow me. I've not even done the simple work of saying, Lord, I have to grow in this area. Please grant me growth on a consistent basis. It was hit or miss. Are we even praying? And beloved, what's our Bible intake? Are we going through the whole counsel of God? Are we listening to the word of God taught or proclaimed? Are we studying at all? Because as we do, the Holy Spirit uses it to grow us and to cleanse from us the filth of sin that yet clings to us. So what does the bronze labor teach us? Two things, we need to be cleansed completely of the penalty and guilt of our sin, having it washed away by the blood of Jesus and regeneration. We also need to be cleansed from the power and corruption of sin so that we grow in faith and obedience and good works and love for God and for our neighbor. As believers, you have been cleansed already, the first one, capital C. You've been washed clean through regeneration. That has happened. And now we have the encouraging work of being able to go after the filth of sin that yet clings to us and cleansing that off. Now, if there's anybody here who is not saved or we know somebody who is not saved, if you've not been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, then you're filthy in your sin and you should know that heaven is a place for the pure. Heaven is a place where perfect purity is the only entrance card in. You need it. And if you don't have perfect purity, and full cleansing, the holiness without which you won't see the Lord. There is no entrance into heaven. And if you've not been cleansed from your sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, then you are filthy in it. And there's only one place you'll ever make entrance into, and that's hell. It's full of filthy sinners who've never been cleansed. So I urge you to think about this. I urge you to be reconciled to God, to trust in Jesus, and cling to him, and be cleansed of the penalty of your sin. Be cleansed of it. Have it washed away through his blood and you will be clean and your entrance into heaven will be secure. And then you will start the lifelong process of growing, even being delivered out of even the power of your sin. Let me just mention this by way of conclusion. In Shakespeare's play Macbeth, uh, King Duncan stands in between Macbeth and the throne and Lady Macbeth is probably just as power hungry as her husband And she had schemed, how can we kill King Duncan so my husband can reign on the throne? Eventually, they pulled it off. She was an accomplice in it with her husband. And right after they killed King Duncan, she said, a little water clears us of this deed. In other words, we can easily cleanse this out of our lives, this murder. Just a few scenes later, she says, outspot. And will these hands never be clean? And all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. What was going on? She was haunted by guilt. She felt filthy on account of her sin. And she couldn't get the spots out. She couldn't get the dirt out. I want this filth to be removed from me. It doesn't matter how many times she would have washed her hands or done anything. That guilt and that filth stuck and it remained. And the bronze labor tells us there is a way to be cleansed, and it's in Jesus. There's a way to have all of our guilt washed away. It's in Christ. There's a way to have the penalty for our sins washed away and our consciences cleared, cleansed, and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when that takes place, the second thing that happens is glorious and delightful too. Slowly, we are delivered and cleansed from the power of sin. And that's a great encouragement for all of us who hate our sin. And as believers, we all do. We want to be delivered from all of it. We want to be cleansed of it. Praise God that he does that work as well in us. Let's pray.